being a kid of the 80s, I grew up on a TV show called Saved by the Bell. A lot of you will, uh, will remember that show. Some of you are older, it was after your time, and uh, some of you are younger, and it was before your time, but the, the idea, the premise of the show was uh, revolving around a guy named Zach Morris and his high school and his group of friends, and uh, he was always up to something. He was always uh, scheming. He always had a plan that he was trying to work out, something that he could, uh, he could get, get something out of it, and uh, one of the coolest things in that show, though, was Zach had the, uh, the ability within the show to say, time out, and no matter what was going on around him, uh, everyone froze, right, completely still, and Zach would explain something, or he would go and, and do something, and then he would go, time in, and everybody would go back to normal as if nothing ever happened, it just went on as if he had not intervened in any way, and uh, that's sort of what we see this week in the book of Acts, um, as we study through Acts, we regularly are shown a picture of what the church looked like on mission. We see the church advancing the gospel, and it's very fast-paced. Um, even, even in just a chapter or two, you'll see that it's moving quickly. That The gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, as Jesus commanded that it should, and that the apostles are, are preaching, they're healing, they're planting churches. They're going to these urban centers and, and, and lodging the gospel into uh, these places of influence and so that it, it spreads rapidly which was exactly as Christ had commanded and planned for it too. And so as we read that, you read about the action of the apostles and the mission of the church and the way that things are advancing. One of the things that Luke occasionally does is call time out. And he says time out, and he gives you a glimpse of what it looked like inside the church. He lets you peer into the, the interactions of believers within the church body to see what's going on as the gospel is advancing to new places. And this passage is one of those occasions, one of those timeouts, if you will. Uh, I've put the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 together intentionally because I believe Luke wrote it to be put together intentionally. Uh, he wrote these stories side by side. One is a picture of, of, a, of a praiseworthy, a positive and encouraging example. You see it in verse 36 and 37 uh, with a guy named Barnabas. And then the very next thing you see is, is another story and it's a terrifying and sobering example to us. And these two, these two stories are linked in several ways, even as you read through the text, as, as Miss Sharon has done for us. Uh, you see, they're, they're, they're not only just together chronologically, the, the placement of them in Acts, but you get a hint of this as uh, chapter 4 concludes and chapter 5 starts with but. Right? You're given a, a comparison, compare and contrast, a, a good and charitable action and one that's awful, one that's terrible. You, you see that at the end of, of, of chapter 4 with, with, with Barnabas. But... You also see that that word but there transitioning us to chapter 5. There's something you should avoid. Here's an example that I'm going to give to you that's negative. Right? Another reason we know that these stories are intentionally connected is because both deal with the selling of property and what to do with the, the sale of the property. Um, additionally, both stories use the adjective great to describe something. In the first story, they're talking about great grace that was encountered. The second story talks about great fear that fell upon people. Luke uses these two stories to point out the kindness and the severity of God as he works through the local church. So the big picture, if you want the, the sermon in a nutshell, if you will, is that these two stories work, work in tandem to show us the nature and importance of unity in the local church. They work together to show us the nature and importance of unity for us as a body of believers, even here at Poplar Spring. 
Verse 32 shows us the foundation of our unity. 33 through 37 show us what it looks like to experience biblical unity. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 show us what it looks like to destroy biblical unity. And so that'll be our outline this morning. Three questions we'll use to help us guide us through the text. Question number one, what is the foundation of our unity? Question number two, what does it look like to experience gospel unity? Question number three, what does it look like to destroy gospel unity? And from the start, I'll just tell you, Tony Marita and Arta Zerdia were incredibly helpful this week in, in my study of the text, thinking through how this applies. As Ms. Sharon's already mentioned, it's a difficult text. It's a hard text. Uh, people fell dead as a result of, of sin, um, and, and that's difficult. And so uh, both of these men and their writings on this passage have been incredibly helpful for me today. Arta Zerdia uh, says that maintaining unity is not easy, but it's also not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not difficult to understand. It's not a complicated matter. It's just a hard matter. And so our first question, what is the foundation of unity? Look at verse 32 again with me. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. But the full number, we have to ask, I wonder what that full number is. It's probably around 10,000 people. If you remember last week in, in verse 4, you learned that there were 5,000 men. Now at this time, and for this culture, most of them would have been married already. And so you add their spouses and you're looking at around 10,000 people unified together in harmony and in unity. And you ask maybe, how is that even possible? Is, that, is, is there some sort of blurring here that, that, that maybe that's just an overstatement, an exaggeration? There's an old saying that where there are five Baptists in a room, there will be ten opinions on a matter. Uh, They had 10,000. How in the world were they unified? How is unity possible for such a great gathering of people? Well, it's really quite simple, and it's given to us in verse 32. I've already read it, and you may have missed it. The full number of those who believed. Faith in the risen Christ united them. If you look at verse 33, which we'll look at in a moment in more detail, it says, With great uh, power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That's key. That's key, and it's fundamental to any unity that's going to be in any church anywhere. The apostles were preaching the resurrected Christ. People were believing upon Christ for salvation, and this was the most powerful unifier that any group of of people could have. Whether there's 10 people or 10,000 people, the gospel was their unifier, and they rallied around what mattered most, what was of most importance, what was of primary concern. They were utterly committed to the gospel of a resurrected king. There's a principle here for us, church, that we can't miss. We don't create unity. God did. We maintain it, and that's put upon us to maintain it, but we don't create it. God is a redeeming God. He has brought his people together through the power of the cross. He has created unity. He's given us something to be unified under. And this truth is even more powerful when you consider the background of this incredibly diverse congregation. Not only was it 10,000 people, but chapter 2 showed us that it was a people from every nation under the sun. If you remember back to chapter 2. And so these people were from diverse lands, diverse cultures. They had different convictions. They had different thoughts. They had different religions. And all of that came under the gospel. That when they met the resurrected Christ, that thing became more important than any of those other things. Even though they came from different places, the blood of Christ bestowed a God-created unity for them. And so this scene is a reminder to us, even in the church today, that unity does not mean uniformity. In other words, we don't have to be exactly the same to be unified. 
In fact, it brings God great glory when we're unified together despite our significant differences. Why? Because our source of unity is not our common affinities. It's our common identity. It's a gospel identity that the blood of Christ has made us one people. And so let me say it in another way. The power of the gospel that unifies us is infinitely greater than any difference of opinion that could potentially divide us. That's the truth of the gospel. The question is whether we believe that or not. We see that this church in Jerusalem, though they were large and incredibly diverse, they believed the gospel. They believed in the resurrected king, and it kept them in a spirit of harmony and unity. That was what their their gospel unity was founded upon. Second question, what does it look like to experience gospel unity? So if gospel belief is what established their unity... What did it look like to experience that unity, right? That's where the text takes us. So as we read this text, it's not hard to see how the the church in Acts, in Acts chapter 4, experienced such remarkable oneness, that they were together, they were in harmony, they were unified. It's because they were generous. They were a sharing congregation. Let's continue reading. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And with great and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Friends, when we rally around the gospel, it leads us to share consistently, which unifies us powerfully. We often fall into thinking that our unity, right, this is, this is where we default to, that our unity uh, is experienced through our agreement on even big matters, right? That our, that our unity as a body comes from that we can, you know, agree on our preferences of homeschool versus public school or our, 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 our views on vaccinations versus not vaccinating, our views on any personal conviction on any matter, our preferences in worship music, our, our, our views uh, politically that we would share a same political party. Friends, here's the reality, though. It's entirely possible that you could agree on every one of those matters and there still be division in the church. The type of gospel unity and identity that Luke is describing here means that the gospel must come first. And it shows, it fleshes itself out, that priority, that gospel priority fleshes itself out as believers practice radical sacrifice for one another. They shared burdens and joys. They shared time and possessions. They were characterized by generosity. Let's dive into this section a little more deeply and observe exactly what that looked like for them. We'll ask some more questions of the text. Starting with who shared? Who was doing the, the sharing? Well, Luke tells us in verse 32 who was sharing. It says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. No one. No, no one was, was stingy. In other words, everyone was willing to sacrifice of themselves for their brothers and sisters. Everyone. Everyone is called on the table here. Well, when did they share? Look at verse 34 and verse 35. It says that they did this to each as any had need. The idea here being that uh, this was an ongoing thing. It wasn't just let's all sell all our stuff, throw it into a common pool and live off of it. It was that they still owned possessions, they still had belongings, and they were at any time willing to give those things up for their brother or sister. It was happening continuously. It was not a one and done uh, food drive sort of thing that we'll repeat next calendar year. It was an ongoing thing. 
Well, what did they share? Look at verse 32. Shows us that they shared everything. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. In other words, nothing's off the table. They had personal possessions, but they didn't hold them with clenched fists. As something to be grasped, as something that they would not let go of. Sounds a whole lot like Jesus, right? Think about Philippians chapter 2. Philippians says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, as it relates sharing and, and generosity, the gospel creates a, a love for us, between us, uh, and, and that love is displayed to our brothers and sisters by a lack of white knuckles. That there would be nothing materially in our, in, our, in our possessions that we have, that we've been given, that we would say, no, this is more important than my love for you. They had personal possessions, but they didn't hold them with clenched fists. And this type of generosity is not something difficult to understand. It's something difficult to apply. Right, we get this. It's not, it's not a difficult concept. That, that if we're holding on to things with, un, with, with, with clenched fists, with that kind of stinginess, then we need to be asking, how much, how much more could I be like Jesus and love my brother or sister better? It's not that we need further explanation of the concept. It's that we need better application of it. You, you get this in, in, with Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? That Jesus is telling this lawyer how to have eternal life. That's their conversation. And Jesus tells him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in the midst of that conversation, the lawyer has the audacity in that moment to want to debate with Jesus about what the precise definition of a neighbor is. Jesus just wanted him to love his neighbor. He didn't want to debate about who a neighbor was, and so he explains the parable of the Good Samaritan. He was, he was trying to find a loophole because his heart was disobedient. And we're like that too. Sometimes we make things more complex than they are because we lack understanding. Not because we lack understanding, because we don't want to obey. And so... The next question that we come to in this passage, what was the result of their sharing? I mean, of the, of, yeah, what was the result of, of, of this, this body, this group, this group of people that, that continued to share? Look at verse 34 and 35. It says that there was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands and their houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any as each had need. Wealthy people were a part of this first church and continued to be. The text doesn't say that there were no rich people among these Christians in Jerusalem. It just says that there were no needy people among the Christians in Jerusalem. And that was intentional. Luke is not describing communism here, that we will all have to, have to be forced to sell our stuff and live off this common pool. He's talking about a group of generous people who were sensitive to the needs of others. And as a result of that, no one went to bed hungry because they could prevent it. And no one was, was living on the streets, sleeping on the streets, because they could do something about it. No one was without clothes because they met each other's needs. Even when selling property was required so that they could do that for one another. That's what they did. And most of us here in this room would be considered wealthy when it comes to the global economic condition in our world today. We need to consider our material wealth, our uh, financial resources, our physical resources is a blessing and a responsibility. God has gifted us, and we're accountable for what we do with those resources that he's entrusted to us. He causes us to take passages like 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 to heart. I'll remind you of this text. 
It says this, for as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they take, may take hold of that which is truly life. And what a challenge this passage gives us in First Timothy. I'm not going to elaborate on it. We heard an incredible sermon on this text just recently through our very own David Amos. It's on our website if you want to hear it again. But what a call for us to consider what the Lord has blessed us with every sphere of our life and consider what it would look like to hold that with open hands. That if we see a brother or sister suffering, uh, what, 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 what is it going to cost me? What would I give up? What am I willing to sacrifice so that they're not hurting? That kind of sharing and generosity is what's produced from a unity that's founded on the gospel. The world doesn't get that kind of thing. I love what Luke does with the rest of this section in Acts chapter 4. Uh, in the conclusion, the last two verses, we get a snapshot uh, of this actually happening. That's what, he go, that's what we have in verse 36 and 37. Uh, read, read with me. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke's doing a few things here. Uh, first, he's showing us an example, a literal example, like see this actually happened with real people. It was not just some utopian pipe dream. Like this, this actually happened. Real people sold real property to care for their very real and hurting brothers and sisters in the faith. You don't believe us, go talk to Barnabas. He's one of the guys that did it. It actually happened. Note, note also that, that when Barnabas did this, he laid it at the apostles' feet. This is a, a position of humility. Uh, this is something to be, to be noted, that he didn't want credit for this incredible act of generosity. He trusted the apostles to distribute it, to be wise and discerning in how it's distributed. He didn't bask in self-glory. I want credit for this, so I'm going to go and, and do something with it. He, he simply wanted God to receive glory for it and it to be used to care for his brothers and sisters. That's where his heart was. The second thing Luke's doing here is he's introducing us to a person that's going to be a very big part of the rest of Acts. Uh, he's introducing us to the son of encouragement, right? It's what the apostles sort of nicknamed him. His name was Joseph. They called him Barnabas, son of encouragement. And he's going to show up throughout the rest of our study, and he's going to live up to that name in numerous ways. So Luke's just kind of tipping us off. Hey, here's somebody you need to know about. He's going to show up for you later. But the third thing he's doing is he's transitioning us. Luke's giving us a very specific example of someone who lived out this sort of gospel-rooted unity and generosity and before giving us a very specific example of another couple that does the exact opposite. And so by putting these two side by side, Luke is saying, be like Barnabas. Don't be like Ananias and his wife. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. And I pray, church family, that as we see these examples side by side, we would be characterized as Barnabas-like followers of Jesus. That we'd be open-handed, that we'd be so centered in the gospel that that would be what's so forefront in our mind. Everything else is just sort of like, like tunnel vision. You, you're, just, you're just passing it by. It's just kind of in the peripheral of your, of your vision. The gospel's here. I've got to care for my brother and sister. I've got to love my church family. All this other stuff's going on around, but it's not the thing that's important to me. So Barnabas gives us the contrast. Barnabas is there as an example for us to see and to, to follow. But let's continue with our third question. Seeing this contrast, what does it look like then to destroy gospel unity? Before we read the, the account of Ananias and Sapphira again, note, though, how good of a historian Dr. Luke is. All right? You know I'm a little bit of a church history nerd. 
And uh, I can tell you how you know a bad historian, right? The way you know a bad historian is that even if you agree with his conclusions or convictions, a bad historian only tells one side of the story. He, he only tells the, the part of the story that makes his side look right or good or victorious or whatever the case may be in that narrative of history. A good historian gives you a fair picture of the past, the, the warts, the scars, the, the falls, the stains, everything. And Luke's doing that. He's not writing a fairy tale about some figurative body of Christ that doesn't really exist. Some, like I said, utopian pipe dream. He's giving us history. He's giving us an account of something that actually happened. Because if he were, if he were wanting to, to, to blur the lines, to make them look better politically in front of their, their Roman counterparts, then he would have left this part out. But he didn't. It's intentionally here, and it serves for us as a reminder that even the most spirit-filled church, the evil one is at work. And at any given time, in any church, even our church, the evil one would love to destroy, would love to create disunity and harmony, disharmony. There's many lessons we could learn here and apply from this story as we read it. Again, Art of Zerdi, I think, summarizes well. He said what we see here is a dangerous holiness is God's response to a determined hypocrisy. A dangerous holiness is God's response to a determined hypocrisy. So as we've been doing, let's ask some questions as we walk through this passage. First being, what were they? What were they? And they were determined hypocrites. Let's read together, starting verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it, was remain, while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own after it was sold? Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. And Jesus calls out the Pharisees throughout the Gospels for hypocrisy. That was his beef with them over and over again. They wanted to be known for their, their righteousness. They wanted to be praised for their good deeds, for their following of the law. Ananias and Sapphira exemplify that same exact spirit. So as we ask, what were they? I think the overarching thing is that they were determined hypocrites. They were committed to this sin. There's some other things that we see of them as well, and that's that one is that they were posers. And the text only makes sense to us when we realize that they were neither forced to sell nor forced to give the entire proceeds from that sale uh, to the church, to the apostles, to distribute to the, to the poor and the ones in need. They weren't required to do that. Either of them are, are completely voluntary. So what's the problem? Why the issue? Why are they now dead? Well, apparently Ananias pretended to give more than he actually gave. He kept some of the proceeds for himself and claimed that he had given it all. He's a poser. He's a faker. He wants the credit for something he didn't do. Second, they were praise seekers. They wanted the reputation of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, without having the, the compassion of Barnabas. They wanted to be recognized by the apostles as, as a son of encouragement without doing the thing that, 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 that Barnabas did, which was to have compassion and love for his brother. Maybe Ananias and, and, and Sapphira wanted the apostles to give them nicknames too, like the son of encouragement. Maybe they, maybe they wanted to be like Barnabas in that way and be given nicknames, maybe the givers, right, or, or Ananias the pious, or Sapphira, the sacrificer, you know, like, we, we, get, we want a cool nickname too. Barnabas gets one. We want the apostles to recognize us too. Either way, they wanted credit. They wanted glory. They wanted to make themselves look good. 
Good thing this isn't a temptation in the church anymore, right? We, we've passed that sort of thing, right? We, we don't have that in our church. Humble brags. Oh, I'm just so exhausted, you know, been serving the Lord. It's exhausting, wearing me out. I'm glad that's behind us. They were liars. The couple lied about their charity. They conspired together to do it. So not only were they lying, they were, they were planning to lie. They were teaming up together to lie. I think God has much to say about the sin of lying. If you study through the scriptures, Paul says it's a result of man's sinful nature and heart in Romans 3, 13. He contrasts this with God's nature, that it's impossible for God to lie in Titus 1, verse 2. God despises lying. We see that in Proverbs chapter 6. Liars are listed among those that will be thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 21. I think it's clear from the scriptures that God hates dishonesty. He hates untruths. And here's the rub. You may be reading this, and, and, and even at this point in the text, when we've not even read about what's happened to them yet, you may be going, whoa, this is a little harsh, right? Like God's a little harsh that he would deal with sin in this way, that the death penalty for lying, like that seems harsh but it misses the severity of sin in general. Peter says that they lied to God, and this concept should stop us in our tracks. This idea should terrify us. It suggests that God takes untruths that we tell as personal offenses against him. That when we speak untruth, he takes it personally. We don't value God's holiness. We minimize sin. And when we minimize sin, we devalue the cross where Jesus traded place with sinners. So yes, even lying looks at the cross and says, eh, it devalues, it minimizes what Christ has done on our behalf. They were also greedy. Verse 3, Peter says that this couple kept back, is the language he uses, kept back part of the proceeds. The, the verb here in Greek means to, to pilfer or to embezzle. Uh, it's, a, it's a rare word that comes up in the Greek version of Joshua chapter 7. You remember through our study of Joshua when you get to chapter 7, Achan, remember him, he goes and hides some spoils of war under his tent. And he and his entire family die as a result of it because it's disobedience to God. It's the same word that shows up there in that account. What we learn through this and through Achan's story, Achan, Ananias, Judas, uh, the rich young ruler, they all show us the devastating effects of greed. That when we live lives like this, it's an evidence that our heart's not surrendered to him. They were Satan's instruments. It's another thing we learn here in the text, and this is a whole other topic for a whole other sermon, but Peter makes it a, a very specific point with a very blunt question that he asks Ananias. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? We see through this that late Satan loves to destroy. He'll do it through the love of money. He'll do it through falsehood. He'll do it through hypocrisy, through lying. He'll do it through disunity. He tempts people to act unwisely and godlessly. He tempts people to underestimate the weight of sin. But friends, make no mistake that Satan's ultimate goal in all of this, in this church in Jerusalem and in ours today, is to destroy people and the church, the love that should be characterizing us. Lastly, the last one at least that we'll mention is that they were spirit grievers. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. To understand that, you have to see that the Spirit is not some force, some magical power or some spiritual cloud that sort of just hovers around some uh, some, some spirit or fluffy thing that you don't get to see. It's just, it's just what it is. He's a person. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is presented to us in the Scripture as a, per, as a person. And, 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 he, and he's one who can be grieved. The Spirit is grieved when we lie, when we deceive, when we steal, when we gossip, when we participate in anything that's contrary to his nature. That's what it means to grieve him as a person. 
they were spirit grievers. Well, that's what they were. Let's ask another question of the text. What was the result? What was the result of their action? It was instantaneous judgment. Let's continue reading. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell dead at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. As a consequence of this couple's massive offense, judgment judgment fell. It came from God, not from Peter. Peter simply did what brothers and sisters do. He held professing believers accountable. God carried out this judgment. And a spirit of fear fell upon everyone because they recognized it as an act of divine judgment. Not Peter and, and some ability that he has to just carry out curses on anyone that he wishes to curse. God's carrying out judgment here. And so don't glance over this simply because you didn't know this couple or because you're disconnected from it or because we have headlines every day in our news of people dying and we've become desensitized to to killings and murders and people's death that happens every day around us in the news. These were real people. This was a real couple, a husband and a wife that were here one moment and gone the very next. Their corpses being carried out the door. And when that scene grips your heart and mind, you may be tempted to think, again, wasn't instantaneous judgment a bit extreme? Wasn't that a bit harsh from from God? Isn't God supposed to be characterized as as a God of mercy? Where's mercy here? What in the world is happening that God would just instantly kill them on the spot? And those questions, that knee jerk reaction comes because we minimize the one in whom the sin is committed against. And, and you've heard me use this illustration before, but I think it's helpful here. Imagine, church, that as soon as we dismiss and say the benediction, I walked through those doors and I walked out into the front, yard, front lawn and I just reared back and smacked the holly bush. Now, there's not a lot of repercussions there uh, other than you're going to think I'm crazy, and rightfully so, and my hand's going to be hurting pretty bad. Uh, but it's not that big a deal, Right? Let's go a little further, though, and imagine that instead of the holly bush, I reared back and cocked Michael upside the head. Just for no good reason, just smacked him right upside the back of the head. Now, that would be unkind, and he would probably be offended, rightfully so, and he'd probably turn around and smack me back, and I wouldn't blame him. Let's take it a bit further and imagine that I get in my car and I I head up to... You know, to, to Pierce's, and I get to the four-way there at the convenience store, and there are three or four state troopers pulled over on the side, and they're talking and, and doing what state troopers do. And, uh, and, and I get out of my car, and I walk up to the first one that I see, and I just rear back, and I cold cock him right in the face. Now, in the next few moments, I'm going to be picking myself up off the ground. No, actually, they're going to be picking me up off the ground because he and his officer buddies are going to ground check me, cuff me, and throw me in the back of the car in a split second. Let's take it a bit further and say instead of the four-way stop sign, I just keep going and I head up to Washington, D.C. And somehow get through the White House and up to the Oval Office and I walk in and, and look Donald Trump right in the eye and rear back and pop him one right in the mouth. 
without hesitation, no questions asked, Secret Service would be gunning me down in a split second. We'll ask questions later. Now, for the record, I have no plans to do any of those things. (laughs) In case the government's listening to our sermons. Uh, But it illustrates a point that the severity of the consequence of our sin is directly related to the one sinned against. And if you can imagine for a second the severity of slapping the President of the United States of America in the face, can you imagine the severity of sinning against an infinitely holy God who not only created everything with words, but maintains it by the power of His Word and is sovereign over everything that happens on this planet? That's who was sinned against. That's who was violated. And that's why this can't be just a, just, it's just a, it's just a, it's a little white lie. They just stretch the truth a little bit. It's, just, it's, a small ma- it's no small matter when the God of the universe is sinned against. And this text should make it clear to us. And our response to a text like this should not be pointing our finger at God and questioning his mercy. It should be, God, have mercy on us. God, have mercy on us. The wonder is not that Ananias and Sapphira fell dead as a result of sin. The wonder is that you and I have not also suffered the same consequence. That's what every one of us deserves. God, have mercy on us. And so as we, as we conclude, one final question we'll ask of the text. What did they need, and what do we need? Obviously, Ananias and Sapphira needed a healthy fear of the Lord. They needed a healthy fear of the Lord. As we consider this text, we should not think God would never do that. that, that, that that's, that, that's unlike God. It's not characteristic of God. Rather, we should remember God will not be mocked. Galatians 6, verse 7. That Proverbs teaches us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so here Proverbs tell you that if you don't stand in awe of God, if there's no fear of God in your heart and life, you're a fool. They they needed a healthy fear of the Lord. Beyond that, Ananias and Sapphira needed the gospel. Either they didn't understand the gospel or it had not taken root in their heart, it had not worked down deep into their hearts and began to produce fruit in them. Because when you get the gospel, when you see the gospel of Christ, you see that the gospel frees us from addictions to self and addictions to stuff. It frees us from from being pretenders. It frees us from being praise seekers, from being liars, from being prideful, from being uh, spirit quenchers, from being greedy, from demanding our own way. Because when you see the gospel, when you get the gospel, you see the, the Son of God, that Jesus took judgment for you. So if you wonder, why, why am I not falling dead? Why are none of us falling dead right now as the result of our sin? You look at Calvary and you see a Savior who fell dead for you. That on the cross, he was bearing the shame of your foolishness. He was bearing the shame of your guilt. That is the gospel. That's what they needed and that's what we need today. Third, they needed to live in repentance. They needed to live in repentance. There was a time, there was a moment before which they went and did this, went in the middle of their conspiring, there was a moment where the Holy Spirit could have been at work convicting them, don't do this. This is wrong. This is sin. This is pride. This is arrogance. This is greed. But instead, they went through with it. And in truth, we're all guilty of hypocrisy. We're all guilty here, just like Ananias and Sapphira. But as soon as we recognize it, we must repent. This couple had been living in rebellion and sin, and they're plotting Their conspiring together shows that this was planned in their hearts. It shows us they were okay with it and unwilling to relent. 
The call to us as the church today is to repent while there's still time. Here's the truth of the gospel. Here's the beauty of the gospel, that because of Jesus' death on the cross, God extends grace. That if you're in this room right now and you're hearing the word of God today, then it means that God, it's evidence that God is giving you time, even in this moment, to repent and turn from the behavior, the lifestyle, the whatever it is that you're clinging on to, that's sin for you. God is giving you this opportunity to repent. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your, uh, yourself to this moment of repentance. And so as we walk away today, what they needed were those things primarily, but what would have been produced would have been a genuine generosity. Maybe they wouldn't have given everything, but they also wouldn't have claimed that they were. Maybe they would have given everything. They would have done it like Barnabas with a spirit of humility, not wanting to be recognized for it, not wanting to, to give me the nickname, give me the nickname. I want to be son of encouragement. I want to do it and not be noticed. I want to do it and not be, not be the one in the spotlight. I pray that when I leave here, you wouldn't even remember the name Ananias and Sapphira or that you'd ever even get an opportunity to know it. Because that's what gospel unity does. That's what the gospel does in our hearts as we live it out. So will we be a generous, generous people? Not just with our time, with our, with our finances. Will we be generous in our thoughts toward one another? Will we lend the benefit of doubt? Will we expect uh, the best of intentions in our brother and sister? Pray that that would be characteristic of us as a church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Even when it's tough and when it's difficult, and even when we see it and it sometimes can even produce more questions than answers, God, we pray that you would help us to submit to it, to allow it to lodge down in our heart and change us to look more like Jesus every day. God, I give you this time and this church and pray that we would be a people that are centered in the gospel that our primary unifying factor would be that we are blood-bought saints of the king and that we'd be willing to put aside our personal preferences or convictions or even possessions for the sake of our brother and sister God, would you be glorified through Poplar Spring, through every heart and life in this room. And God, if there's one person here this morning, they've, God, they've never experienced the radical change that the gospel brings. They've never seen their sin hung to a cross in the person of Christ. I pray today would be the day of salvation. And that, that today they would see that they deserved the judgment that Ananias and Sapphira had. But Jesus bore it for them. They deserve hell and punishment for all eternity, but Jesus bore it for them on the cross. And God, I pray the result would be repentance and faith and a life forever changed by the gospel. So we give you this time, Father. As we respond, would you be honored? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.